Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I think if you think of sport and religion, I think there are only two things that can, that can influence the amount of people that can influence across the world, you know. Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? I am doing well as well. It's uh, springtime, so now we yes. are getting the warm weather. Uh, everyone run outside and go play versus the chillier weather, which we've got today, which is not so fun because you're like, where's well, so warm? I am looking out my window, and out my window are these huge forsythia bushes that are just starting to come into bloom. So it's definitely making me feel much more springy, Mm -hmm. you know, much more sneezy again. Right. But it is a beautiful sight. That's good. So I'm ready. That's good. And the cherry blossoms were out in uh, Tokyo. I don't know if you saw all all the pictures they were posting. Yeah. So they should have the Olympics. They should have spring Olympics, just so we could see the cherry blossoms. Just like the the Athens Olympics started not that long ago. So that's right. Today was they the Olympics Channel posted that today was the hundred meter, or the hundred yard, I guess dash. Oh, the anniversary of it. Yes, <laughs> yes, it was today. So, nice. you know, if they have pictures, if uh, Japan did have the Olympics during the cherry blossom season, they wouldn't have the issues that they're worried about with the marathon being so hot because of climate change. That's right. It would be <laughs> definitely a little cooler. And then as they're running, they could have the pedals just sort of blowing across the road. Right. Wouldn't what that an be a angle sight, and right? right? Mm. Oh, man. We got ideas. Missed we got opportunity. Ideas, right. But speaking of climate change, uh, we got on a little sustainability kick this week. And so uh, that's what we're talking about on today's show. And it kind of happened because I was on Twitter and saw an article written by Matthew Campelli, who's the founder and editor of the Sustainability Report. And that is an online publication devoted to tracking sports sustainability. And this article was about how the Olympic broadcasting system 
uh, dismantled the the media center from Pyeongchang and brought it over to Uganda to a refugee camp to set up some shelter buildings there that they really needed to help run the camp. And I thought that was really interesting. So reached out to Matthew, who agreed to come on the show and talk about how the IOC has evolved in its sustainability efforts. Take a listen. We're talking about sustainability, and it's it's interesting because in the last few Olympic cycles, the IOC has made this big push to be more sustainable. Why is it important for organizations like the IOC to have a sustainable initiative? Well, I, I think for the IOC, I think there's there's a couple of reasons. The first thing I think, reputationally, is really, really important for the IOC. You know, when people think of big major sporting events, cynical people will think of, you know, white elephants, facilities that aren't being used, facilities that have been built for two or three weeks for one year, and then they're not used afterwards. So I think the IOC is slowly, slowly trying to change that perception of the Olympics. And in fact, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but they're looking now for host cities to bid with existing infrastructure, uh, looking at temporary infrastructure as well. So that's one of the reasons I think it's really, really important for the IOC to, to be looking at sustainability in, a, in, a, in quite a, a full way. Secondly, the IOC is, a, is seen as a role model for other sports organizations. It needs to be seen to be doing things that are sustainable so that it can influence you know, the Olympic movement at large, influence international federations, national Olympic committees, other sports organizations, and even fans and athletes to some extent as well. So let me ask a, a really basic question. Is there a difference between sustainability and legacy? Well, I guess... I guess there's not a huge difference between sustainability and legacy because when you talk about sustainability, you're talking about hosting an event, but trying to minimize, not only minimize negative impacts, but also um, maximize positive impacts as well. So what they'll be looking for now is they'll be looking for, um, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the, the new host city contracts that they're going to be implementing for 2026, but they'll be looking for um, host cities to be bidding with a kind of sense of how the Olympics can be a positive accelerator or a catalyst for sustainable development within their city as well. So sustainability is in many ways about minimizing negative impacts, but also about really maximizing the good, the good stuff that the Olympics and the Olympics can, can do for a city. Because I know in the Olympic movement, you hear more legacy versus sustainability. So I just wanted to make sure we were yeah. using sort of interchangeable terms. Yeah, no, sure. And I, I guess another thing from an Olympic point of view, in terms of sustainability, particularly from an environmental side, is that Many sports are facing existential threat because of climate change now, particularly winter sports. So they know that there's a very practical sense for them looking at reducing their carbon footprint and trying to influence the industry at large to reduce their carbon footprint because they're finding that sports like skiing and snowboarding and even other, even other summer sports are really facing pressures because of the changing climate in many countries. Just, just to add another point to that, I, I guess just, just another point to add, you know, in terms of why it's really important for the IOC, is I think now we're seeing the IOC... And sport in general are trying really hard. They're battling in some respects to really engage the younger generation. And I think we're seeing that with some of the new sports they're trying to implement during games. And I think with the younger generation, we're seeing particularly with climate strikes happening in Europe. And I don't know if it's happening in the, in the US as well, where you know young school kids are striking from school to really boost awareness of what's happening around climate change. They have to align with a cause. And to kind of get uh, millennials, Gen Z um, individuals to um, be more engaged with sport and the Olympics in general, they need to see an organization like the IOC really doing something really holistic about, about climate change and sustainability. 
So let's talk a little bit about history of sustainability and the IOC. Was this something that came in with Thomas Bach, or is there a longer history? They're really kind of early adopters, I guess, in, in many respects. I think the, the first publication they released on sustainability, we're looking at 1999, so almost, well, 20 years ago now. But I guess if you're looking at the IOC actually, actually adopting sustainability as, as a real core part of the business, where we're definitely looking at the Thomas Bach era and looking at the kind of implementation of Agenda 2020. And I think the kind of the real kind of pivotal kind of events you'd be looking at from a games perspective would be Vancouver in 2010. And then London in 2012, and looking at how the um, the event organisers, the OCOGs, really made sustainability a real core part of those games, and really set the standard for football games going forward. So, how was Vancouver different than the previous uh, few Winter Games? So, Vancouver was the the, the first games to have its uh, its own standalone sustainability strategy and report. So, following the games, they released their own report on what they'd done around biodiversity around um, measuring, uh, reducing and offsetting all of the carbon emissions that, uh, that, you, that they had during the games. So, for example, building, building new venues, travel, uh, that kind of stuff, trying to really reduce those carbon emissions and offset the unavoidable emissions that they, they couldn't reduce, like travel, for example, and construction. And then uh, they also, I mean, it wasn't just environmental sustainability. They did an awful lot around social sustainability as well. They had a big project around children's literacy, which was really, really interesting. So they really um, took hold of that and really, really made sustainability a, a core part of, of the games. And London just took it forward a, a step further, I'd say. Okay, so what else did London do? So London, I guess I'm, I'm quite biased here because London is my home hometown, but they did a really great job with the games. They took a really uninhabited part of the city, a part of the city that was, it was just, it was just a, a uninhabited, full of trash. There was no, no development there. It was a real brownfield site. And they made the Olympic Park a real hub of biodiversity and a place where lots of plant and animal species could live in the perimeter of the Olympic Stadium and all of the other venues there. I think I'm right in saying that London was one of the first games to look at temporary venues as well. Um, so not building you know, permanent infrastructure, but taking temporary infrastructure down as well. And it was the first games. They, they created a sustainable event standard called the ISO 2012-1 based on the London Games looking at a real systematic way of being sustainable from looking at sourcing, sourcing food, sourcing other products, sourcing construction tool, uh, construction equipment. So from kind of top to bottom, it was really, really holistically sustainable, I'd say, London 2012. I've seen something recently where on Twitter where I think it was the, the London Olympic Park was ta talking about the legacy that they've had. And I was talking with somebody else from England this past, last year, and they said, well, we're just starting to see the sustainable initiatives coming through and the legacy coming through because it takes years and years to kind of see that. And, you know, some of the responses to the legacy were, oh, you can't say that the Olympics drove a lot of like schools to open and renovation to happening. That was going to happen anyway. Do you think that initiatives like that, how London really transformed an area, would have happened without the Olympics driving it? It's difficult to say, really. But I know at the time that the, the mayor of London, a guy called Ken Livingston, who had no interest in sport whatsoever, like sport was not in his not in his book. He didn't invest in sport really to any kind of great extent. But he said, look, I want to bring this Olympics to London just for, for the social aspects. I want to bring affordable housing to that part of London. I want to clean up that part of London and make it into a habitable area for people living there and a, a place that, that, that we can be proud of. So I think that, um, I mean, perhaps that work would have been done eventually, but there's no doubt about it that the London Olympics really accelerated that work.
So I'm curious about Rio and sustainability because they had okay. so many. <laughs> I know you laugh. They had so many issues leading up to with pollution and corruption. And then we see so much after just laying fallow. So what happened with Rio? Rio, both, I guess. Before and after. I guess to some extent it was it's very difficult with Rio. I mean, it's, it was the same as the World Cup in Brazil a couple of years before. They won the bidding for those two events when the Brazilian economy was in a, a boom period. You know, they, they looked like safe bets for the IOC and for FIFA. And they, they awarded those games in a very, very different time. And by the time the games rolled around, you know, we're looking at recession, we're looking at political turmoil in Brazil. And I guess those are things that you can't really legislate for, I guess. Um, and they, they, they just didn't have the resources to, for, to fulfill the sustainability and legacy projects that they had in mind. I know they had one really great project that they wanted to do. They they built the, I think it was the volleyball or the handball arena, uh, a, a temporary venue. And they were going to take down the venue after the games and make it into a couple of schools for children you know they're going to use that material and make it into public schools and from my understanding that building is still standing there you know they, they they haven't used those materials they haven't made it into the legacy project hasn't been fulfilled so i guess when you look at political and economic turmoil to that extent i, I guess it's really difficult to f fulfill those kind of ambitions i think so from a sustainability point of view the ioc not venturing into some of these new territories, literal territories is actually a good thing. Going with kind of the old friends like Tokyo should be a better bet. You know, I was having this debate, I've had this debate before, and I mean, you'd always have people, particularly people who are into the sustainability world and people who are involved in sport and sustainability arguing that, you know, when it comes to things like World Cups and, uh, you know, Olympics, perhaps we should pick, you know, 10 to 12 host cities you know, summer and winter, and we would just circulate, you know, over the years, we, we, we had the same cities, but we'd, we'd, we'd kind of just change it every, every couple of years. And I guess from a sustainability point of view, I guess you can, you can argue, I mean, there are, there are arguments for that. I mean, you're not going to be building new infrastructure if you're, if you're looking at the same cities every, you know, every couple of years. Okay, there'll be work to do on renovations, but you won't be looking at kind of huge construction jobs that you'd seen in previous Olympics. But I guess from the Olympic point of view, I mean, Sustainability is one of the three core parts of their Agenda 2020, and it is a massive thing for them now. But it's not the only part of their business. There's an argument to say that IOC and FIFA and other sports organizations, they, they have to bring sport to other parts of the world because they just need to grow their audience, and they just need to expose those people to, to that sport. So it's a very difficult thing to juggle, I think. you know, There are arguments for and against, but I think the IOC's and FIFA's um, kind of stance on this is that you know, they, they, they can't limit it just, just because of their audience. So what are some of the unique ways that the IOC and the host cities have been sustainable besides like Vancouver? Because and here I'm getting at the what really helped me find you was the article you wrote about the broadcasting system modular studio going to Uganda to be reused there. That was a project that happened in collaboration between the Olympic Broadcasting Service, the organization that does all the broadcasting for the Olympic Games and, and the IOC. And it got to a point where they were trying to recycle the uh, temporary infrastructure they were using for broadcasting. And while most of the material is, is recyclable, they can get rid of it in a kind of eco-friendly way, they decided they wanted to do something more with it. They wanted to kind of impact social sustainability as well as environmental. And the IOC, have got, they've, they've set up very good links with the, the United Nations. They were talking to the um, UNHCR, which is the refugee arm of the United Nations. And they said, look, we've got all this material. We could recycle it, but we, we want to do something that can have real social impact as well. 
So the UNHCR put a couple of um, suggestions um, their way in terms of using it for um, for displaced people and refugees. And they discovered that there was an area in Uganda which was really in desperate need of, uh, of facilities for, for the refugees and displaced people coming from places like Congo and South Sudan. Uh, I think Uganda have got something like one and a half or two million refugees in the, in the country. And that particular refugee camp had thousands and thousands of people coming in a, in, a, in a kind of weekly or monthly basis. So they kind of used that material to not only house the people, but to create um, infrastructure for the police, infrastructure for their um, immigration uh, officers. So I think they're really pleased with that project uh, in terms of sustainability, environmental and social. I think it's really interesting that that's, it's a unique and creative way, I think, to be sustainable. What other types of really creative ways have not just the Olympics, but other sporting events, been sustainable? I guess to some extent, there isn't a huge amount of creativity at the minute because when you look at sport in general, sport is, I don't want to say it's not late to the table in terms of this whole sustainability movement because there is a core set of people who are working in the sports industry who are doing some really, really, really great work. But I would say that it's still in its infancy to some extent. You know, There are lots of, lots of organizations that are looking at kind of what I would call sustainability 1.0 where you look at kind of things like recycling, waste management, carbon emissions, you know, stuff to, you know, really be um, uh, compliant and, and doing, you know, doing the best to limit negative impact. But there's a, there's a whole host of things you could be doing, like project with the IOC to boost positive impacts, you know, and really going from a, a place of trying to, you know, limit negative stuff to a place of a net increase and a net positive impact. One of the best examples I can give you is a, is that there's a soccer club in the UK called Forest Green Rovers. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They're the smallest professional league football club in, in the UK. And their owner is a guy called Dale Vince. He's a renewable energy entrepreneur. He owns wind farms and renewable energy. And he's really built this small club around being sustainable. I mean, they've got all of their food is vegan. So if you go to watch a, a football game, a soccer game in that club, you'll have to eat vegan burgers, vegan kind of uh, hot dogs. Everything's vegan, basically. And they've, they've really created this kind of brand uh, around environmental sustainability, around, you know, green matters, around being responsible. And even though they're the smallest club in the UK professionally at the moment, they've got fan clubs in the US, they've got fan clubs in Scandinavia, they've got fan clubs all over the world. I think 60 or 70% of their shirt sales come from, you know, outside of the UK, which is incredible. So they're, they've really built a brand around being sustainable. So that's one of the creative ways I can kind of demonstrate, you know, sport, sport really um, building their brand around, around environmental sustainability. But there are growing movements now, particularly in the US, actually. They're, they're, I don't know if you've heard of the Green Sports Alliance and the Council for Responsible Sport. In the, in the UK, there is a basis, uh, Sansi Sport and Sustainability International, Sustainability International. So there are quite a few movements looking at this sport and sustainability space. So I think it'll be a growing sector, and I think you'll probably be hearing more about it, not just from the IOC, but other professional sports organizations in the future. Now, we very briefly touched on the new contract for the host cities, and there is huge sections, because we did read that so that the listeners didn't have to. <laughs> um, they do sort of broadly talk about sustainability in kind of open-ended terms, would you have liked to have seen that be a little more specific? I don't want to give a non-answer non here, but I guess to some extent they have to be quite loose with the wording and not so specific because, you know, when they talk about host cities, they'll be talking about very different locations, very different organizations they're going to have to deal with when they, when they do go to a, 
various host cities. Um, but I think what we're looking at is we're looking at you know contracts that obviously more robust than, than we've seen previously around sustainability. We're looking at criteria around the sport venue development. Brand identity, I think, is a real crucial one. Because when we talk about sport and we talk about sustainability and sport moving to that next level and actually trying to engage fans and sponsors and athletes, which I think is where the real impact is going to come from, when you can try and you know really um, impact you know other organisations, not not just the sport itself, and you look, look looking outside the sport, I think brand identity is is really crucial, and it'd be interesting to see how they weave sustainability into brand identity from 2026 onwards. You know, procurement is is really crucial. I mean, that that being in the host city contract is really really important. When we when we talk about impact, if you look at procuring construction materials, procuring kits from different parts of the world, and we're looking at the way they're being made, not just from an environmental sustainability sustainability point of view, but from a social point of view as well. You know, we're looking at trying to um, create a kit that's not made by kids, for example. We're looking at you know, people getting the right right wages; they're not being exploited. So. We're looking at those kind of things in, in, in host city contracts. I think that's a real positive step forward. So what can we look forward to from Tokyo? Because I know they have talked about some of the sustainability, like the metals are coming from former cell phone parts and things like that. You know, Tokyo is going to be an interesting one, particularly from a mobility side. I think uh, when we look at what they're going to be doing, their partnership with Toyota, they're going to be looking at 100% electromobility. Um, I think that's going to be really, really interesting to see how they can kind of pull that off and, and carry that off as well. And there's a, this huge talk of them moving to this hydrogen economy, moving away from fossil fuels and greenhouse gases, particularly with the, the, um, the building and the construction and, and the day-to-day maintenance of the athletes' village and the, and the facilities. So Tokyo will be a really interesting one. However, I think the one that's going to be really seismic will be four years later in Paris, because I think Paris is going to be really, really incredible in terms of what they're doing sustainability-wise. I think we're going to be looking at an Olympics that will be the most sustainable games of all time, I think. It's, it's safe to say. If, if, what, they, if what they're planning is, is carried off, I think it will be a real benchmark for what we're going to be hopefully looking at going forward for games. So talk to us a little bit about what they're doing that's really going to be a turning point. Okay, so it will be a completely carbon-neutral games. That's, that's their plan anyway. Aside from the carbon emissions that they're going to be reducing, they're going to be offsetting all of the unavoidable emissions that they that they can't reduce. So whatever they can't reduce, they will invest in sustainable development projects, either close to home or in developing countries to balance out their carbon footprint. 95% of the venues will be either existing venues or they'll be temporary venues. So there'll be very, very little um, in terms of permanent builds, which is going to really, really reduce the carbon emissions that they're, they're going to generate anyway. And so I think they're looking at half the carbon emissions of previous games in the 2010s. So looking at London, Rio, all of the other winter games as well. So they're looking at half of the carbon impact for those games, which is really, be really significant. Aside from that, they'll be looking at electromobility as well. They're doing lots of work around public transportation, public transit, biodiversity projects. They'll be doing a big cleanup job on the River Sien. So the athletes can use that for um, outdoor swimming competitions. And I think following the games, the general public will be able to swim in the CN, which will be a really, really uh, big achievement because it's not something you'd want to swim in now. <laughs> so that'll be a very, very big job. So they're doing a lot of work, a lot of work that I think is really, really exciting for anybody with a sustainability bent. So would you expect it to just keep growing? Like, do you see this as kind of a permanent change in the Olympic movement? I think the IOC would like it to be a, a permanent change. I think again, it really depends from host city to host city whether it can be uh, it can be a, a permanent change. A lot really depends on. I mean, to some extent, a, a lot of it is out of the IOC's hands. They can put things in host contracts. They can kind of try and pressure host cities to do certain things. 
But at the end of the day, a lot of it has to come from the OCOG. A lot of it has to come from the host city, the local government, the, the state government as well. So I think that, yes, I think when, when they'll be looking at, you know, potential bidding cities, they'll be looking at sustainability pledges and commitments. But I think to, you know, go above Paris and LA in 2028, which has also got some really, really great plans that, again, there's, there's a long way to go. But I think they're looking at a lot of um, existing infrastructure as well. I think to get it beyond those levels will be a huge achievement and the IOC will be delighted if they can if they can keep it at that kind of level. Do you have a favorite for 2026 on the sustainability vote? I guess it's hard to say. I guess it's difficult to say. I'm, I'm half Italian, so I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> so am I. So that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a joke on our show about how I love to say Cortina. Okay, okay, right, okay. So, <laughs> but I guess from a sustainability point of view, if we're looking at Are in, in Sweden, they just hosted the Alpine Skiing Championships a few months ago, which was one of the most sustainability, it will be one of the most sustainable sporting events this year and probably one of the most sustainable sporting events that have ever have been, particularly in snow sports. I think it was 80% fossil fuel free. They did a lot of work around sustainable procurement as well. They achieved the ISO 2012-1 certification for event management uh, that was uh, conceptualized following the 2012 Olympics. So I think they've got a lot going for them criteria-wise when it comes to sustainability. So I guess at the moment, I guess I'm on the fence really. Um, but there are pros and cons for both cities. Where do you think the Olympic movement could do better? Like, is there something that they're um, ignoring, or not ignoring, but like could be a little bit better that they could do? So I guess the Olympic movement in general is, uh, I guess there, there's a lot the Olympic movement could be doing. If, we, if we're talking about the NOCs and the IFs as well, I mean, the IOC are doing a lot. And, and, I, and you know, sometimes we, when we look at the IOC and FIFA, they, they can be easy organizations to criticize sometimes, particularly for, you know, some of the things that have gone on in, in, in the past. And I think the media are very quick to kind of criticize the, the, these organizations. And, and sometimes they're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes they, they have to be scrutinized for some of their, some of their practices and some of the things that they've, they've done previously. But one of the things that gets overlooked when you look at organizations like the IOC is that they've got a lot of people working in that organization that are really, really committed, really knowledgeable, really skillful people who are doing a lot of work in areas such as sustainability. And I know that they're doing a huge amount to try and get the Olympic movement to become as committed as they are, really. In the past few months, we've seen the IOC produce sustainability guides for NOCs and international federations to try and help them, to try and give them practical guidance on becoming more sustainable. They're doing guides around carbon, uh, you know, lowering carbon emissions, around waste, around engaging with athletes and fans, the subject of sustainability. They were a really big, a key catalyst in the United Nations Climate Action Framework, which is a piece of policy they produced last year uh, around COP24, um, around, you know, sports organizations trying to reduce their environmental impact. So I think from the IOC's point of view, they're doing an awful lot to try and get the Olympic movement at large to become more sustainable. Now, whether they're doing that, or whether they will do that or not is, is a different story. And I think to some extent it's very difficult because a lot of the IFs and the NOCs will not have the resources that the IOC have that they, they can devote towards this. But if we're looking at areas of good practice, we can look at organizations like World Sailing, for example, who are doing an awful lot. They've got their own sustainability uh, strategy and they they do an awful lot in, in, in this space, which I kind of you'd expect them to do, particularly with the big worldwide awareness of ocean plastics and what the you know what's happening to the ocean pollution wise. The IAAF are doing a lot around air pollution. Um, if we look at a more holistic social sustainability, they're doing a lot around um, um, gender equality within their council, within their kind of leadership positions. So there are elements of best practice within the Olympic movement. 
but there is a long way to go for the whole Olympic movement to get up to kind of the kind of position that I think the IOC wants them to be in sustainability wise. When you're talking about a small NOC or a small federation that just doesn't have a huge budget, what are some things that they can do that are easy to implement and maybe don't take a lot of money and get that mindset of sustainability rolling so that they could think, you know, just keep building off of that just in even in small increments so i think one of the strategies that the ioc has for, for dealing with this is they're looking at collaboration and knowledge sharing one of the things they've set up recently is they set up a, a european noc working group i think there's 10 or 11 nocs involved in it where they're getting together on kind of semi-regular basis to talk about some of the work they're doing in sustainability and to try and knowledge share really so that they're more than some of their parts so, for example, I know that the Spanish Olympic Committee are doing a lot around, you know, reducing plastic. I think they're close to being 100% free of single-use plastic, you know, using, you know, glass bottles for water inside, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, small things, but things that can go a long way if you do it all together. So I think that's one of the ways that the IOC is trying to get, you know, small organizations to to have, you know, more of an impact. They, they can't do it alone. They're trying to get them to work together to have, you know, create a bigger impact. And I think we'll see a similar kind of working group for the Oceania region next and I think they'll try and roll it out to the rest of the world so that they can, you know, increase that impact. Very interesting. Is there anything else that we haven't covered, Matthew, that uh, on sustainability that would be helpful to know and think about? I guess from um, an IOC point of view, they're um, they're opening their new headquarters in June in Lausanne. Oh, right. Yeah. Which is going to be, I think they're expecting it to be lead platinum, which I think is the highest level of kind of environmental, sustainable building that you can get from the U.S. Green Building Council. And they've done that working with Dow Chemical. And they've got this partnership with Dow Chemical now. They've got as a sustainability partner where they've, they're creating this, this building which is really energy efficient. They've used, you know, kind of solvents that, you know, don't contribute to air pollution. It's, really, it's going to be a really, really incredible building. And it's, it's very expensive, I think, but it's really energy efficient and really, really kind of top of the line when it comes to sustainability. So they're walking the walk. You know, I, I would I would say I would say they're walking the walk. Absolutely, I think the, the the things they're doing kind of in house, what they're trying to do as the owner of the Olympic Games and also the leader of the Olympic movement, I think I, I would say they're walking the walk. Okay, there 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 are things that they'd like to improve. I guess there are things that are, that are out of their control to some extent when we talk about the Olympic movement and the games, but I think the sustainability team within the IOC and I deal with them on quite a regular basis. They're doing an awful lot of work and they're they're really really. I would say they're pioneers in the sports the sports business in terms of sustainability, really real leadership, I would say. Well, and, and you know, I'll, I think it's important for us to remember that the IOC, like, like you say, there's stuff out of their control and that the IOC and the host cities are really two separate entities. So there's only so much that the IOC can control because I know, especially with the new headquarters, there's the criticism that, oh, Rio can't pay its bills or Rio can't do its sustainable initiatives. Meanwhile, the IOC has this massive new headquarters. But really, those two organizations are separate, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess, I mean, when we look at Paris, for example, one of the reasons that Paris is going to be really great from a sustainability point of view is they've got a mayor there, Mayor Anne who's part of the C40, which is a big conglomerate of major cities in the in, in the world that really look towards climate change. She's a real advocate of the Paris Agreement. She talks about climate change, you know, all the time. And, and they've got a, an, an election there next year for a mayoral election. And if she's replaced by potentially the, either the far left or far right, which is, you know, really possible in France at the moment, if you, if you, if you look at the political turmoil in France, 
that, that could put Paris's um, plans on its head to some extent. So, I, I, so a lot of it is down to host city and host state, uh, uh, you know, plans politically. Well, that's sad. It is sad. It's, it is sad. It's a little sad that it's so based on the whims of an individual. I, I think we're so far down the track with Paris now. I think I think it will be okay. I think they can't make you know wholesale changes to it now. But I mean, it's you know it's really feasible. I mean, if you look at the political climate, I mean, not just in Europe, but across the world now, things are so fragile and things are so um, kind of unpredictable. And, and I guess the, the whole sports industry, including the IOC and, and the Olympic Games as well, have to be mindful of this because it's it definitely affected you know going forward in the future. Matthew, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on. And yeah, thank you so much. We'll keep in touch with you and uh, keep talking about this because it's important that we we keep it in mind. And even, you know, it's it's one thing that the Olympics can influence just a regular individual to be more sustainable in their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If they, if they can influence one individual, that's that's great impact already. That's, that's fantastic. So, yeah. I, I, I think sport in general, and I think sport... We're going to see sport doing a lot more in this space because I think if you think of sport and religion, I think they're the only two things that can that can influence the amount of people that it can influence across the world, you know. And if, if sport can get people to become more sustainable and really think about climate change, particularly in this political environment, when we're looking at governments, you know, the US government, we're looking at some governments in Europe, which, you know, climate change is not really, I mean, it's not really part of their policy, really. I mean, they're, they're climate deniers to some extent, you know. So we have to look at business, we have to look at outside, we have to look at civil society to try and push this agenda forward. And I think sport's got a big role to play in that. Thank you so much, Matthew, or as we like to call you now, M. Camp. You can find the Sustainability Report at sustainabilityreport.com and on Twitter, it's at susreport. And Matthew is at Matt Campelli at Twitter. And we really hope he changes it to M. Camp. Because uh, as we, we talked about during the lightning round that we did with him, uh, Matthew got a new nickname with us. And uh, that's just a tease. When we do another lightning round episode, you'll have to figure out why we started calling him M Camp. But that was really fun. That was fun. He was a good sport, <laughs> even with very loud German people screaming at him in the background. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, it's it's so interesting how complex this issue is because... The Olympics just get branded as the Olympics, and the average person, I think, doesn't understand that the IOC is one entity and a host city is a completely different entity, and it's really difficult to, I think, for the IOC to say, hey, host city, you must do X, Y, and Z, because they've given them autonomy for a lot of stuff because they don't want to take the expense of hosting the games. Right. And they also, they want to control, but not always, like you were saying, be responsible. Right. So there's that fine line between we want each city to run its own games and run its own corporation and to balance that in their own country, because countries obviously do things differently, but it still has to be the Olympic brand and still has to have certain standards. Right. And now, now we talk about adding some sustainability in it, which is a really good thing to do. But there, sometimes there's only so much you can do with some host cities, Rio. Yeah. And I had totally forgotten about the Vancouver Initiative. When he started talking about it, I said, oh, yes. I remember them saying about trying to be carbon neutral and offsetting and, and reusing things. And mm-hmm. so... 
I don't think the IOC has done a great job of promoting that aspect. And maybe it's because Rio and Pyeongchang weren't good examples of it. Yeah, I don't know. So, I, I mean, like, well, you've got a couple of examples from Pyeongchang and like the reusing of the, or not the reusing, but the um, temporary facilities that they've had there. Right. I think as part of the legacy, they need to do a better job of explaining what they're doing and why they're doing it and and how these things are being carried on. Right. And, you know, and I would say do it in a fun way because publishing a sustainability report or a press release with these are our initiatives. And I don't think people will read that because it tends to be in some of the basic, uh, say, dry language of the IOC. Whereas you, you know, hand that over to the Olympic channel people who have a lot of fun with their. Yeah. They could probably do a whole series on, okay, Olympic channel, I'm going to give you a programming idea whole series on the different sustainability efforts of the different host cities. Honestly, I know it's a great idea and I bet they, I bet they're already doing it. Shut up. It's my so, idea and I'm going to okay. sue them when they, when, they, <laughs> when they don't give you a producer credit. Exactly. <laughs> and my cut. All right. Well, maybe we'll poke around the Olympic channel and see what they've done, but I, you yeah. know, they got it. They got to do something to uh, promote that definitely in a fun way and that's it's really i mean it is really important and it's it was interesting to hear how sports plays such a role in influencing people's lives just globally because there's very few touch points that nations and even regions have anymore you know you'd used to have your country's favorite television show well people don't even watch the same you know television is so fragmented or movies are so fragmented you know having sports is still one of those continuums. Right. And, and sports are one of those things that certainly in the United States, people still want to watch live. Yeah. So we have that communal experience. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you, M camp. We really liked having you. <laughs> Just going to keep you. And I can't wait to see him spinning on his head. All right. Before we get into our Team Olympic Fever update, I just want to say a big shout out and thank you to our Patreon patrons. You uh, and your uh, support really helps the show flourish and thrive. We can't do it without you. We I say a lot that the show takes a lot of time and effort. And I got to tell you, you know, when we say time and effort, honestly, Allison, I was looking the other day at our uh, spreadsheet and we have like three dozen queries out between the two of us for trying to get people to come on the show yeah it's like three dozen i'm not kidding you like wow i'm not surprised i am not surprised either it's like we just keep going we just keep doing right so you know it's that kind of work of trying to figure out who we want to get on the show and generate the show ideas but also trying to get people to come on and having to do a lot of follow-ups because i bet if we've got three dozen queries we probably got like six dozen follow-up emails out there too so it's a lot of work and a lot of time and your financial support really helps us offset those costs and helps us be able to do more things with the show. So if you want to get in on the action, join us at patreon.com slash Fever. Now moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. <laughs> wow, I was feeling you. very, you know, <laughs> I know I was feeling kind of alto today 
You got a little uh, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos vibe going. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I guess I should change my black turtleneck. I won't right. blink for the next half hour, and then we'll be real set. <laughs> All right. In our tofu news this week, a little bit of sad news from the world of figure skating. Our pair skaters, Nate Bartholome and Deanna Stellato, have ended their partnership after two and a half years. Um, Nate's had some nagging injuries that will require significant time away from the ice. I think I saw that his knee has been bothering him. Yes. I think it's, it's definitely a knee, and I want to say there's a hip going on, but that could just be mine. true <laughs> it's it's sad you know and it's got to be a difficult decision and nate i hope you can heal up quickly and and figure out what's next for you and same with deanna i really enjoyed watching them i mean they were I know, really they beautiful. Were beautiful and to yeah. be able to get to that level where they were competitive on the national stage in such a short amount of time it was impressive they were yeah. they are very talented skaters and they both issued very sweet statements about each other announcing the the end of the partnership so it sounds like it was a professional decision not a personal decision which Which also made me happy which is nice which you know made me feel sad but not upset right for them right well best of luck to both of you and we'll keep uh, our eyes open to see how you're doing because you know nate you're on once you're on team olympic fever you don't come off so. even if you want to you <laughs> yeah, can't right? you just can't moving on to the world of artistic swimming jacqueline simino placed third at the solo free and she placed first and won the solo technical event at the fina world cup series event in alexandropolis greece Nice. I left that, that one to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't going to try and say that Greek name. <laughs> but but oh, yes. Congratulations. Very pretty. That's yeah. lovely. That's exciting because uh, she is really talented. Really, really yes. talented. So I hope she has a... That's a nice way to start her season off. And then... Absolutely. Moving over to the world of modern pentathlon, our Team Olympic Fever modern pentathlete Samantha Ekterberg will be competing this weekend at the World Cup event in Sofia, Bulgaria. So good luck, Samantha. And I have always wanted to go to Bulgaria, so I'm very, I'm jealous. Sofia, Bulgaria, I think is one of the most beautifully named cities in the world. Yeah. It's both Sofia and Bulgaria just sound beautiful. Right. But I would love to go there someday. So let us know, Sam. Good luck. How is it? Yes. (laughs) Is it beautiful? Yes. So she won't know. She'll be running and shooting things. Yeah, right. So I hope she does really well and improves from her first World Cup finish. Moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. Japan's Olympics minister, Yoshitaka Sakurada, resigned Wednesday after coming under increasing pressure over a series of gaps. The latest one. Okay, so this is the guy who started off saying that, yeah, I'm the government's cybersecurity strategy chief, but I don't use a computer. <laughs> then he said, oh, remember that? <laughs> and then he said, oh, yeah, I've heard of the Olympic Charter, but I've never read it. <laughs> He's running and the he's Olympic, the Olympic yeah. minister. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And then he said, in fact, this was horrible. He said he was very disappointed when Japanese swimming, she was a medal hopeful of Rikako Ike. She was diagnosed with leukemia. And then he goes, oh, well, I'm so disappointed in that because it means what? 
you know, we're going to lose a medal. <laughs> not, right. Not and like... She was, yeah, she was kind of the poster child for their advertising efforts. Right, right, right. So, oh man. So he that was disappointed was... she had leukemia. Oh my God. Everyone's got an uncle like this. Right. This is like the uncle that shows up drunk at Thanksgiving every year right, and you're right, just right. like, oh. Hide your lampshades. Uncle Yoshi's back. <laughs> Oh, Uncle Yoshi. But, but so the kicker was he just said that politics was more important than the recovery of the area devastated by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. Oh, Uncle Yoshi, that was definitely a uh, not good, not good a, at all. A step too far. So he's lost his so job. That, yeah, go ahead. So the Japanese Olympic uh, committee's in some turmoil right now. Yeah, I guess so for leadership. You know, in terms yeah, of you're you know. losing kind of your top two people, so that's right surprising. Right, I would not have expected that from Tokyo. No, I would not have really expected expect- it. But you know, I I'm, I'm not super worried because I bet the the ranks underneath are just humming along. Like that's clockwork. probably true. So yeah, what I also found was interesting was uh, the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe said. I apologize for hiring the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Now, I realize in Japanese culture, you know, apologies are standard. Right, right, right. When something losing face happens that he would apologize. Yes. Can you imagine an American president apologizing for a hire? No, 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 no. But yeah, I would, I would I'm like to apologize. I'm not talking about this yeah. American president. I'm talking about any American president. Oh, yeah, that secretary of state, she or he was terrible. That was a mistake. No, yeah, but right? that the prime minister comes out and was just yes. like, Uncle Yoshi shouldn't have been <laughs> over at the party. So he ruined the wedding. Right. We had to let him go early. Yeah. So. We sent him home in an Uber. <laughs> well, we're laughing about it, but I, I hope yeah. this does not cause disruption. Right, right, um, right. In, in the planning. I, I would agree. I hope that everything is going smooth sailing over there. Speaking of sailing, there is some controversy in the world of sailing. And we're going to be honest, we don't know a whole lot about sailing as a sport. And it's been on our list to try to figure out. But there is a little, I want to say, war maybe about the laser class boats and so there's something about the the company that is building the laser class boat and they're going the world sailing is going to rename that type of race because they're going to use a new kind of boat for it and it's I don't quite understand what's going on, but they want to avoid trademark issues and comply with requirements of European competition law. So to everybody who is an approved builder of this boat, we'll need to sell it under a new brand name. So they can't call it laser anymore. So it's not, so the laser class races are not going to be laser class anymore. Right. I think it's going to be called something else and, and use a new brand and they're going to, it, it Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird, complicated thing, but I, it has something to do with the, the I think it's kind of like Xerox or Kleenex here in the U.S. where Kleenex is synonymous with tissue. So I think laser is synonymous with the laser class boat. And so laser performance makes it and it's trademarked. A... So they can't really call it laser right now gotcha. to comply with some law. So 
that will be interesting. We're going to really try to understand sailing soon and, and get some more clarification on that. But I thought that was an interesting uh, element that's happening over in sailing. And then we have, oh, let's say it's on some, do you have any happy news? Because otherwise we're ending on a sad note. Okay, I'll, I have a little bit of happy news. Okay, so, so then I'll, we'll, say, I'll save that. We'll add on a. Uh, we have a little another bit of sad news. Yang Ho Cho, who was the leader of Pyeongchang's bid, uh, passed away. He uh, had been trying for many times to get uh, Pyeongchang to host the Olympics, and and Pyeongchang did ho- like bid three times, I think, for to get the the games, and they finally got it. But he had a brief illness and uh, had some lung disease and passed away this past week at the age of 70. So our condolences to his family and the, uh, the Koreans who had worked with him. And uh, that's really kind of sad, but yeah, he had some good vision because man did Pyeongchang host a good games. It was beautiful. Despite how freezing everybody says it was, it was, it was a joyful game. Yes. So, so here's my happy note Good. that we're going to end on. Yay. Dawn Harper Nelson, do any day. <gasps> is she? She is. She looks gorgeous. Of course. She is so excited. She's been posting videos and pictures of her trying to figure out the car seat and doing all the laundry with the little booties and their uh, maternity photo shoot. And I'm just, I cannot wait for this baby i'm never probably gonna meet this baby and i am so excited for this baby so dawn we are thinking of you we are pulling for you i hope it's all you know smooth sailing on our sailing uh definitely analogy definitely oh that's exciting so that is a good note to end on so we will wrap it up for this week we will catch you back here next week for more olympic stories and thank you so much for listening until next time keep the flame alive Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at olymfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Oh, Hide your lampshades. Uncle Yoshi's back. <laughs>